Welcome to the uh, seventh and final event in uh, the new writing series for this quarter. Uh, I'm Professor Dollar. Uh, I am merely here to thank uh, the Sims Family Trust for their support of our series, as well as the uh, Dean's Office of Arts and Humanities, um, and to remind you to please turn off or mute your various pocket heaters. Uh, and um, to also to remind you that after this event, uh, there will be a pop-up uh, gorilla art show in the library, is that correct, uh, for Anna Joy Springer's graphic text class. So that could be, will be incredibly exciting. That's good. Get it out of the way now. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm also here to introduce our introducer, whose name is Christine uh, Wood Martinez, uh, who is part of our writing community here at UCSD. So, uh, Christina. Hello. My name is Christina, and today it is my honor to welcome Lydia Davis to UCSD. Davis is an American author born in Northampton, Massachusetts, and is a graduate of Barnard College. She is a celebrated translator, professor, and writer of fiction, recognized for her innovations within the short story form. Davis's prose is quiet, calm, and carefully crafted. Her characters are often anonymous, and we as readers are only privy to their thoughts or observe their actions omnisciently. Her stories are often very short, sometimes only a sentence, oftentimes just a few pages, but her concision is powerful. Her prose is on the one hand simple, meticulous, and distant, and on the other deeply earnest and private. Her stories can be both humorous and bittersweet, and it is the delicate balance that makes it is this delicate balance that makes Davis a great story writer. In her fiction, Davis is, above all, skilled in the art of misdirection. She keeps the reader's focus on something tiny, a punctuation mark, an ordinary household chore, a caterpillar, and through a subtle sleight of hand, reveals something wonderfully complex about inner human life. Davis has received many accolades for her writing. She is a MacArthur Fellow, has won the Whiting Award, and was nominated for both the National Book Award and Penn Hemingway Award. In 2010, her stories were published as a single volume in the collected stories of Lydia Davis. In her role as a translator, Davis has translated numerous French literary classics, which include Proust's Swan's Way and Madame Bovary by Flaubert. Additionally, she is currently a professor of creative writing at the University of Albany, SUNY, and is the Lillian Vernon Distinguished Writer-in-Residence at NYU. And with that, please, welcome, uh, please join me in welcoming Lydia Davis. Get everything set up here, including this enormous bottle of water. I don't know if the dark room makes me more thirsty or being in Southern California. I'm really happy to be back here 
at UCSD because um, this was an early stomping ground, or a stomping ground of my late uh, late youth, early middle age, and um, I was it was actually my first teaching job, and I thought I'd never be a teacher because I was so shy, which I still am, believe it or not. So I thought the one career I would never go for was teaching, where you had to stand up in front of people, and they would all look at you at once. And that still bothers me. But um, my friend Michael Davidson here is responsible for rescuing me from a Brooklyn job that paid very poorly in the, in the sense that it, we had a check every week. It wasn't a large check, but the check always bounced. <laughs> I was typesetting at a Brooklyn newspaper, and he invited me to come out for one quarter, and it ended up being two years, of course, the way things happen. So willy-nilly, I started teaching and haven't ever stopped. So I had two very good years here and became good friends with Michael and Ray Armentrout and Chuck and Melvin Preiliker, among others. And so it's very good to be back. I've been back since, but not much. Um, and it's been years. So I'm going to today read all new work um, which I usually like to do because I like to hear hear the new work myself. Um, some of it's very new, so um, it, you know, it. I may very well have second thoughts about it. Um, too late for this reading, but I'm going to go ahead and read, and I'll um, I'll sort of read. I'll divide them into little sections some of which, you know, the categories are meaningless. I call them small, but a lot of them are small, for example, short. Anyway, I'm going to start with two, um, two that have the word T-W-O in the title. Two undertakers, and these are going to be very short, but, but as I say, most of what I'll be reading is quite short anyway. One undertaker taking a body north on the highway in France stops at a roadside restaurant for a bite of lunch. There he meets another undertaker, a colleague known to him, who has also stopped for a bite of lunch and who is taking a body south. They decide to sit at the same table and have their meal together. This encounter of two professionals is witnessed by Roland Barthes, it is his own deceased mother who is being taken south. He watches from a separate table where he sits with his sister. His mother, of course, lies outside in the hearse. Two characters in the paragraph. The story is only two paragraphs long. I'm working on the end of the second paragraph, which is the end of the story. I'm intent on this work and my back is turned. And while I'm working on the end, look what they've been up to in the beginning. And they're not very far away. He seems to have drifted from where I put him and is hovering over her, only one paragraph away in the first paragraph. 
true, it is a dense paragraph, and they're in the very middle of it, and it's dark in there. I knew they were both in there, but when I left it and turned to the second paragraph, there wasn't anything going on between them. Now look. Handle. I have a problem in my marriage, which is that I simply do not like George Friedrich Handel as much as my husband does. It is a real barrier between us. I am envious of one couple we know, for example, who both love Handel so much that they will sometimes fly all the way to Texas just to hear a particular tenor sing a part in one of his operas. By now, they have also converted another friend of ours into a lover of Handel. I am surprised because the last time I talked about music with this friend, what she loved was Hank Williams. All three of them went by train to Washington, D.C. this year to hear Giulio Cesare in Egitto. I prefer the composers of the 19th century, and particularly Dvorak. But I'm pretty open to all sorts of music, and usually if I'm exposed to something long enough, I come to like it. But even though my husband puts on some sort of Handel vocal music almost every night if I don't say anything to stop him, I have not come to love Handel. <laughs> Fortunately, I have just found out that there is a therapist not too far from here in Lenox, Massachusetts, who specializes in Handel therapy. And I'm going to give her a try. My husband does not believe in therapy, and I know he would not go to a Dvorak therapist with me, even if there was one. I'm now going to read a series of dream pieces. Um, I got started reading, uh, writing, writing these pieces, which um, which are uh, versions of uh, well, they're stories that are made out of dreams, but um, very selected, selected. Dreams, in the sense that I mean, if you tell all of a dream, it's always inevitably boring to the other person, even though it's never boring to you because it really happened in some sense. Um, so uh, these are dreams either that I had or that someone else had, or that uh, they're real life experiences. And this is what interests me: the the, the thin line or the. Uh, I don't know what to call it. The the moment when a real life experience feels like a dream, and if you tell it in the right kind of language, sounds like a dream. Uh, so all these are all mixed. They're either my dreams, friends' dreams, my expe waking experiences, or friends' waking experiences. The piano lesson. I am with my friend Christine. I have not seen her for a long time, perhaps seventeen years. We talk about music and we agree that when we meet again, she will give me a piano lesson. In preparation for the lesson, she says, I must select and then study one Baroque piece, one classical, one romantic, and one modern. I am impressed by her seriousness and by the difficulty of the assignment. I'm ready to do it. We will have the lesson in one year, she says. She will come to my house. But then later, she says she is not sure she will be returning to this country. Perhaps instead we will have the lesson in Italy. Or if not Italy, then of course Casablanca. 
The Sentence and the Young Man. A sentence lies exposed to public view in an open trash can. It is the ungrammatical sentence, who sing? We are watching it from where we stand concealed, perhaps in a shadowed archway. We see a young man walk past the trash can several times, eyeing the sentence curiously. We will stay where we are for fear that at any moment he will reach in quickly and fix it. The piano. We are about to buy a new piano. Our old upright has a crack all the way through its sounding board and other problems. We would like the piano shop to take it and resell it, but they tell us it is too badly damaged and cannot be resold to anyone else. They say it will have to be pushed over a cliff. This is how they will do it. Two truck drivers take it to a remote spot with a high elevation. One turns his back and walks away down the lane while the other shoves it over the cliff. Dinner. I am still in bed when friends of ours arrive at the house for dinner. My bed is in the kitchen. I get up to see what I can make for them. I find three or four packages of hamburger in the refrigerator, some partly used and some untouched. I think I can put all of the hamburger together and make a meatloaf. This would take an hour, but nothing else occurs to me. I go back to bed for a while to think about it. (laughs) The grandmother. A man has come to my house carrying a very large peach tart. He has also brought with him some other people, including a very old woman who complains about the gravel and is then carried into the house with great difficulty. At the table, the old woman observes to one man by way of conversation that she likes his teeth. Another man keeps shouting in her face, but she is not frightened. She only looks at him balefully. Later, when she is back at home, it is discovered that while she has been eating many cashews from a bowl, she has also eaten her hearing aid. Even though she chewed on it for nearly two hours, she could not reduce it to particles small enough to swallow. At bedtime, she spat it out into the hand of her caregiver and told him this nut was a bad one. (laughs) Awake in the night. I can't go to sleep in this hotel room in this strange city. It is very late, two in the morning, then three, then four. I am lying in the dark. What is the problem? Oh, maybe I am missing him, the person I sleep next to. Then I hear a door shut somewhere nearby. Another guest has come in very late. Now I have the answer. I will go to this person's room and get in bed with him. (laughs) Then I will be able to sleep. At the bank, one. I take my bag of pennies to the bank and throw them into a machine that will count them. I am asked by a functionary to guess how much my pennies are worth. I guess $3. I am wrong. They amount to $4.24, but since I am within $1.99 of the correct sum, I qualify for a prize. Many people nearby in the bank congratulate me warmly. I may choose from among a number of prizes. When I refuse the first and the second and seem likely to refuse the next, 
the anxious teller unlocks a secure vault and shows me the full array, which includes a large plastic piggy bank, a coloring book and crayons, and a small rubber ball. At last, so as not to disappoint her, I choose what I think is the best of them, a handsome frisbee with its own carrying case. At the bank, too. Again, I go to the bank with a bag full of pennies. Again, I guess that my pennies will add up to $3. The machine counts them. I have $4.92. Again, the bank officer says I am close enough to the correct amount to win a prize. I look forward to seeing what the selection of prizes will be this time. But there is only one prize, a tape measure. I am disappointed, but I accept it. At least this time I can tell that the bank officer is a woman. Each time before there was no way to tell if she was a woman or a man. But this time, though she is still bald, her motions are less mechanical, her voice is higher, she smiles, and there is a pin on her chest that says, Janet. And this this next one is called, and it's not a poem even though it looks like a poem on the page because, um, I don't know, it's somehow a list, I guess. We were talking a lot about line breaks yesterday and today, the way you do when you see an old friend, you know, after years. (laughs) (laughs) But these are not line breaks. Molly Female Cat, History Findings. Skin coat, inflamed, irritated around neck. Parasites, flea dirt found. Nose, throat, no visible lesions. Broken tooth, upper right canine. Dental disease grade, two to three out of five. Eyes, no visible lesions. Lungs within normal limits. Lymph nodes normal, heart within normal limits urogenital system within normal limits, urinating inappropriately at home, larger amounts than before. Ears, no visible lesions. Moderate fascial skin restriction over lumbar back, significant over sacrum. Abdomen, no palpable lesions. Nervous system within normal limits. Two other cats in house and they run around in large house. Her first year indoors. Eating well, dry food. Ideal weight, 8.75 pounds. Weight, 8.75 pounds. Doesn't use litter box. Defecates on floor in front of it. Urinates on floor in two to three spots. Getting worse over time, larger puddles of urine. Sometimes cries before or after urinating. Cries when she comes down from nap. May have fleas. Seems sensitive when pet above tail. Pain score 3 out of 10 over sacrum. Pulse 180. Body condition score 3 out of 5. The next little series are stories from Flaubert. And what happened was that um, when I was translating Madame Bovary, and thank you, by the way, for the introduction. Where was the introducer? I liked that introduction. Um, 
and she mentioned the translation of Madame Bovary, I was uh, pretty conscientiously uh, looking at Flaubert's letters that he wrote during the time he was writing Madame Bovary because I wanted to see if he expressed thoughts about what he was doing, if I could get any little helpful clues. And also I wanted to see how he wrote when he was writing spontaneously, um, as opposed to revising and revising, which he did. I was able to see the rough drafts of his work for Madame Bovary, and um, he revised intensively and in many, many different 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 drafts. Um, so I, I wanted to see how he wrote spontaneously, but I was also slightly bored by the work of plowing through the letters, some of which were not so interesting. But every now and then I would come upon a delightful little story that was sort of embedded in a, in a letter. And uh, I began to look forward to finding another one and another one. And after the translation was finished, I took out these stories and shaped them a little bit to make them seem whole to me, and uh, without trying to change anything more than I had to about the language. So these are little, little, little stories, about five or six of them from Flaubert. I ended up doing about 13. The Cook's Lesson. Today I have learned a great lesson. Our cook was my teacher. She is 25 years old and she's French. I have dis I've discovered that she does not know that Louis-Philippe is no longer king of France and we now have a republic. And yet it has been five years since he left the throne. She said the fact that he is no longer king simply does not interest her in the least. Those were her words. And I think of myself as an intelligent man, but compared to her, I'm an imbecile. <laughs> the visit to the dentist. Last week I went to the dentist thinking he was going to pull my tooth. He said it would be better to wait and see if the pain subsided. Well, the pain did not subside. I was in agony and running a fever. So yesterday I went to have it pulled. On my way to see him, I had to cross the old marketplace where they used to execute people not so long ago. I remember that when I was only six or seven years old, returning home from school one day, I crossed the square after an execution had taken place. The guillotine was there. I saw fresh blood on the paving stones. They were carrying away the basket. Last night I thought about how I had entered the square on my way to the dentist, dreading what was about to happen to me, and how, in the same way, those people condemned to death also used to enter that square, dreading what was about to happen to them, though it was worse for them. When I fell asleep, I dreamed about the guillotine. Strange thing was that my little niece, who sleeps downstairs, also dreamed about a guillotine, though I hadn't said anything to her about it. I wonder if thoughts are fluid and flow downward from one person to another within the same house. <coughs> the Coachman and the Worm A former servant of ours, a pathetic fellow, is now the driver of a hackney cab. 
You'll probably remember how he married the daughter of that porter who was awarded a prestigious prize at the same time that his wife was being sentenced to penal servitude for theft, whereas he, the porter, was actually the thief. In any case, this unfortunate man, Tole, our former servant, has or thinks he has a tapeworm inside him. He talks about it as though it were a living person who communicates with him and tells him what it wants. And when Tole is talking to you, the word he always refers to this creature inside him. Sometimes Tole has a sudden urge and attributes it to the tapeworm. He wants it, he says, and right away Tole obeys. <laughs> Lately, he wanted to eat some fresh white rolls. Another time, he had to have some white wine, though the day before, he was outraged because he wasn't given red. The poor man has by now lowered himself in his own eyes to the same level as the tapeworm. They are equals, waging a fierce battle for dominance. He said to my sister-in-law lately, that creature has it in for me. It's a battle of wills, you see. He's forcing me to do what he likes. But I'll have my revenge. Only one of us will be left alive. Well, the man is the one who will be left alive, or rather not for long, because in order to kill the worm and be rid of it, he recently swallowed a bottle of vitriol and is at this very moment dying. What a strange thing it is, the human brain. <coughs> the chairs. Louis has been in the church in Mont looking at the chairs. He has been looking at them very closely. He wants to learn as much as he can about the people from looking at their chairs, he says. He started with the chair of a woman he calls Madame Fricotte. Maybe her name was written on the back of the chair. She must be very stout, he says. The seat of the chair has a deep hollow in it, and the prayer stool has been reinforced in a couple of places. Her husband may be a rich man because the prayer stool is upholstered in red velvet with brass tacks. Or he thinks the woman may be a widow because there is no chair belonging to Monsieur Fricotte, unless he's an atheist. In fact, perhaps Madame Fricotte, if she is a widow, is looking for another husband, since the back of her chair is heavily stained with hair dye. The last one is called The Old Soldier. I saw something the other day that moved me, though I had nothing to do with it. We were three miles from here at the ruins of Lassay Chateau, built in six weeks for Madame Dubarry, who had a notion to come take sea baths in the area. There's nothing left but a staircase, a large Louis XV staircase, a few windows without panes, a wall, and wind, wind. It's on a plateau within sight of the sea. Next to it is a peasant hut. We went in to get a drink of milk for Liline, who was thirsty. The little garden had lovely hollyhocks as high as the eaves, a few rows of beans, a cauldron full of dirty water. Nearby, a pig was grunting, and farther off, beyond the enclosure, unfenced foals grazed and whinnied, their full flowing manes moving in the wind from the sea. Inside the hut on the wall was a picture of the emperor and another of Badanguet. I was probably about to make some joke when I saw, sitting in a corner by the fireplace, half paralyzed, a thin old man with a two-week-old beard. Above his armchair hanging on the wall were two gold epaulettes. 
The poor old man was so infirm that he had trouble holding his spoon. No one was paying any attention to him. There he was, ruminating, groaning, eating from a platter of beans. The sun shone in the window onto the iron circles around the buckets, making him squint. The cat was lapping milk from a pan on the floor, and that was all. In the distance, the vague sound of the sea. I thought about how in this perpetual half-sleep of old age, which precedes the other sleep and is a sort of transition from life to nothingness, the fellow no doubt was seeing once again the snows of Russia or the sands of Egypt. What visions were floating before those cloudy eyes? And what clothes he wore? What a jacket, patched and clean. The woman who served us, his daughter, I imagine, was a 50-year-old gossip in a short skirt with calves like the balusters in the Place Louis Cannes and a cotton cap on her head. She came and went in her blue stockings and coarse skirt, and splendid Badanguet was there in the midst of it all, mounted on a yellow horse, three-cornered hat in hand, saluting a cohort of war-wounded, their wooden legs all precisely aligned. The last time I visited the Lasse Chateau was with Alfred. I can still remember the conversation we had and the verses we recited, the plans we made. And to change pace completely, the, the next two pieces I'll read are uh, letters of complaint. I, I, the first letter of complaint I wrote was a letter of complaint to a funeral parlor about the word cremains. <laughs> and after I did that, I realized what a fruitful territory this was. Because <laughs> I'm I, a very fussy person in many situations, and I, I have many complaints about many things in many situations. So... Um, I started writing more letters of complaint. And I'll read the next two. One is rather short and one is a bit longer, which shows what capabilities the letter of complaint has as a form. Letter to a frozen peas manufacturer. Dear frozen peas manufacturer, we are writing to you because we feel that the peas illustrated on your package of frozen peas are a most unattractive color. We are referring to the 16-ounce plastic package that shows three or four pods, one of them split open, with peas rolling out near them. The peas are a dull yellow-green, more the color of pea soup than fresh peas, and nothing like the actual color of your peas, which are a nice, bright, dark green. The depicted peas are, moreover, about three times the size of the actual peas inside the package, which, together with their dull color, makes them even less appealing. They appear to be past their maturity and mealy in texture. Additionally, the color of your illustrated peas contrasts poorly with the color of the lettering and other decoration on your package, which is an almost harsh neon green. We have compared your depiction of peas to that of other frozen peas packages, and yours is by far the least appealing. Most food manufacturers depict food on their packaging that is more attractive than the food inside and therefore deceptive. You are doing the opposite. 
you are falsely representing your peas as less attractive than they actually are. We enjoy your peas and do not want your business to suffer. Please reconsider your art. Yours sincerely. I actually sent that to the manufacturer, but got a reply completely at cross purposes. Letter to a hotel manager. Dear hotel manager, I am writing to point out to you that the word scrod has been misspelled on your restaurant menu so that it appears as shrod with an S-C-H. This word was very puzzling to me when I first read it, dining alone on the first night of my two-night stay at your hotel in your restaurant on the ground floor of your very beautiful, off your very beautiful lobby with its carved wood panels, lofty ceiling, and rank of gold elevators. I thought this spelling must be right and I must be wrong, since here I was in New England, in Boston, in fact, home of the cod and the scrod. But when I came down from my room to the lobby the following night, about to dine in your restaurant for the second time, this time with my older brother, and as I waited there in the lobby for him, which is something I generally like to do if the setting is pleasant, it's a pleasant one and I am looking forward to a good dinner, though in fact on this occasion I was quite early and my brother was quite late, so that the wait became rather long and I began to wonder if something had happened to my brother. I was reading some literature provided to me by the friendly clerk behind the reception desk, whose manner like that of the other staff, with the exception perhaps of the restaurant manager, was so natural and unaffected that my stay in your hotel was greatly enhanced by it. After I asked if he had any account of the history of your hotel, since so many interesting and famous people have stayed here or worked here or eaten or drunk here, including my own great-great-grandmother, though she was not famous. And in this literature, presumably written by the hotel, I read that your restaurant claimed, in fact, to have invented the word scrod to describe the catch of the day in contrast to cod, I suppose, for which this city is, almost, is also famous. I also remembered, perhaps wrongly, seeing this word elsewhere spelled shrod, unless that is S-H-R-O-D, unless that is a different word with a different meaning. I had thought, I suppose mistakenly, that scrod meant young cod, or perhaps it was shrod that meant young cod, and scrod that meant catch of the day, if the word shrod existed at all. I don't know much about scrod, <laughs> Only the old joke about the I corrected this in pencil the old joke oh about the two genteel ladies returning on the train from Boston and in the course of their conversation mistaking the word scrod for a past tense. And I had always thought that it was a particular kind of fish. For a moment the previous evening, as I say, I thought this spelling might even be correct, and then I was fairly certain it was not correct, but I was unsure whether it should be shrod, S-H-R-O-D, or scrod, if the word shrod existed. But nowhere else have I seen it spelled shrod with an S-C-H. I did eventually on the second evening make a connection, perhaps a false one, between 
this misspelling and the accent with which your restaurant manager addressed my brother and me. <laughs> this manager was present in the dining room both nights I ate there, and although courteous, seemed a bit cool in his manner, not to me in particular, but to everyone, and on the second evening did not seem to want to prolong the conversation I started with him, in which I suggested that the restaurant might add baked beans to the menu, since baked beans are also native to Boston, and the restaurant boasts of being the inventor of Boston cream pie, the official Massachusetts state dessert, as I learned from the hotel literature, as well as uh, the Port Parker House roll. He seemed almost transparently impatient to end the conversation and move on. <laughs> Though move on to what, I did not know, <laughs> since he did not appear to have more of a function than to walk rather self-importantly, by which I mean with an excessively erect posture, from one end of the long, rather dim, splendid room to the other, that is, from the wide doorway through which a handful of people now and then came in from the lobby to have dinner, to what must have been the kitchen well hidden behind some sort of bar and two large potted palms. In any case, I noticed as he stood conversing with us, inclined slightly toward us, but at each pause turning to move away, that his accent might be identified as German. And this caused me later, when I was thinking about the misspelling of Scrod, to speculate that the very Germanic S-C-H spelling was his doing. This may be quite unfair, and perhaps it was someone else, someone younger, who misspelled Scrod, and the mistake was not caught by your manager because of his Germanic predisposition <laughs> towards beginning a word with S-C-H. Here I should add in his defense, parenthetically, that despite his cool manner, he, he was, he was, uh, he might be, no, again, I've corrected in pencil, um, parenthetically, that despite his cool manner, he seemed quite open to my idea that baked beans might be included on the menu. <laughs> he explained that at one time the restaurant had brought out little pots of baked beans with the rolls and butter at the start of the meal and that they had stopped doing this because so many other restaurants in Boston featured baked beans. I did not want him to think that I liked the idea of little pots at the start of the meal. <laughs> Far from it. I thought it was a terrible idea. <laughs> Baked beans at the start of the meal would not be a good appetizer, being so heavy and sweet. No, no, I said they should, they should simply be listed somewhere on the menu. I happen to love baked beans, and I had been disappointed not to find them here in this Boston restaurant, along with the scrod, the Parker House rolls, and the Boston cream pie, all of which I ordered on the second night. My dinner companion, that is my brother, was tolerant of this protracted and perhaps pointless conversation, either because he was happy enough to be sitting over a nice dinner and a glass of red wine after the difficult day he had had going here and there in the city, which is not his native city, as he attempted to complete several pieces of business in connection with our mother's estate, not all of which were successful, or else because my behavior reminded him, in fact, of our mother, who was so very likely to start a conversation with a stranger, or rather, it would be more truthful to say, could hardly let a stranger come anywhere near her without striking up a conversation with him, learning something about his life, 
and letting him know about some firmly held conviction of hers, and who passed away last fall, much to our regret. Although, naturally enough, certain of her habits bothered us while she was alive, we like to be reminded of her now because we miss her, and we are probably both adopting some of those very habits if we had not already adopted them long ago. (laughs) I think my brother even added a suggestion of his own to the manager after sitting, listening quietly to mine. This was actually the second time now at the urging of our waiter, who thought my idea was a good one, that I had called the manager over to our table. The first time I waved to him, it was not to speak to him about the baked beans or the spelling of Scrod, but about another guest in the nearly empty dining room, a very poised little old woman, her hair in a pearl gray bun at the nape of her neck, who sat surprisingly low down on the banquette by the side of her much younger hired companion so that she had to reach quite far up and out to find her food. I had noticed her during my dinner the night before since we were near one another and there were even even fewer guests. And the companion and I had at last struck up a conversation during which I learned that the old woman lived a short walk away and had been having her dinner at the hotel every night for many years and that, in fact, I was inadvertently occupying her usual spot in the dining room under the brightest light. The companion, after consulting the old woman, had specified that she had been coming here for 30 years, which astounded me. But now, on the second night, the restaurant manager corrected this to a mere five or six years. I wanted to suggest, perhaps because I had drunk my glass of Cote du Rhone by then and was feeling inspired, that the hotel should make a photographic portrait of her and hang it on the wall in one of the rooms, since she was now part of the history of the hotel. I still think that would be a good idea and that you might consider it. In fact, later I got up from my chair, perhaps indiscreetly, and went over to the old woman and her companion as they were leaving and suggested the same thing to their obvious pleasure. I did not think it would be tactful, however, to bring up the spelling of Scrod so directly with the manager, and that is why I am instead now mentioning it in a letter to you. My stay in your grand hotel was delightful, and apart from perhaps the coolness of the restaurant manager, every aspect of the service and presentation was flawless except for this one spelling mistake. I do believe the purported home of the Scrod should be a place where it is spelled correctly. Thank you for your attention. Yours sincerely. I don't think I had read Thomas Bernhardt a great deal when I wrote that, but maybe I had. Um, Now, a, a shorter one called How I Read As Quickly As Possible Through My Back Issues of the TLS. The TLS is the Times Literary Supplement for those of you who aren't addicted to it already. And um, I have many back, back issues and sometimes think I should get through them all and get through them quickly because there are several grocery bags full of them in the house. And when we moved to where we're living now about five years ago, I thought, well, surely I'll throw them out at that point. But when it came to it, I couldn't because I really like the TLS. But it's a problem. It's not the worst problem. (laughs) How I read as quickly as possible through 
my back issues of the TLS. I do not want to read about the life of Jerry Lewis. I do want to read about mammalian carnivores. I don't want to read about the portrait of a castrato. I do want to read about the history of the Inca quipu. I do not want to read about the history of the pandas in China, a dictionary of women in Shakespeare. I do not want to read about Ronald Reagan. I do want to read about sow bugs. I want to read about the creation of the musical South Pacific, which they say will contribute greatly to the still underwritten history of the Broadway musical. Not interested in the Oxford Companion to Canadian military history. <laughs> Not interested today in Hitler, London theater productions. Interested in the psychology of lying, Anne Carson's book about the death of her brother, French writers admired by Proust, Catullus, translation. Not interested in the creation of the Statue of Liberty, not interested in the Archbishop of Canterbury. Not interested in this poem, Light Dazzles from the Grass Over the Carnal Dune. <laughs> Not interested in any of these poems. Not interested in the Anglo-Portuguese establishment or heraldic leopards. Interested in dust jackets in the history of bibliography, in the life of Borges, in the life of Raymond Cano. Not interested in the friendship of Elgar and Schenker, the Audit Commission, any of this fiction, the work of Alexander Pope. Interested in altruism, the Pont Neuf, the history of daguerreotypes. Not interested in, or well, yes, maybe interested in, Laura Bush's autobiography, <laughs> The History of Diplomacy. That'll, I'll probably make that longer as I, as I try to get through more back issues. <laughs> of course, the problem is probably nearly everything is interesting written about the right right way and on the right day. That's why it's hard to get through. This is called local local obits. And it's a bit long, it's about twice as long, but I, I won't I'll read about just part of it. Local obits. Helen loved long walks, gardening and her grandchildren. Richard founded his own business. Anna later helped on the family farm. Robert enjoyed his home. Alfred enjoyed his best friends, which were his two cats. Henry enjoyed woodworking. Ernest has now left his suffering behind. John enjoyed fishing and woodworking. Toodles enjoyed puzzles of all kinds, painting items her husband built and keeping in touch with family and friends via the computer. Tammy enjoyed reading. She bowled in the mixed league at the barbecue recreation lanes. Margaret enjoyed watching NASCAR, doing crossword puzzles, and spending time with her grandchildren. Eva was an avid gardener, bird watcher, and also enjoyed reading and writing poetry. She loved entertaining.
Madeline traveled extensively. She enjoyed painting, ceramics, bridge, golf, any card game, word search puzzles, gardening, coin and stamp collecting, and flower arranging. She loved visiting with friends both at camp and at the family home on Main Street. Albert was an animal lover. Jean, a special ed aide, liked crochet and knit. Harold enjoyed hunting, fishing, camping, and the spending time with family. Charlotte was an avid quilter and also loved picking blueberries on her farm in Taberton. Alvin was a skilled craftsman and gardener. He was also an avid sportsman, enjoying trout fishing, ice fishing, grouse, and deer hunting. He was a member of the Ruffed Grouse Society. Sven, 80, a builder, was a member of the Free and Accepted Masons, the Nordic Glee Club, and the American Union of Swedish Singers. He was most often found in his workshop building something. Spencer poured his remaining years into milking cows and tilling the land. He always liked the smell of fresh cut hay on a summer day. He also liked watching football in the fall and always said Joe Montana was the best QB to play the game. In later years, he liked to visit Stewart's regularly with his brother Harold and watch the people. He had the gift of gab. With anyone who knew him or even didn't know him, he would strike up an hour-long conversation. Mrs. Brown, a registered nurse for 32 years, was fond of the nursing field. Roxana was an avid golfer and bowler and loved crocheting and oil and watercolor painting. Frederick was the owner of Half Moon Saloon for 10 years and was a member of the Elks Lodge, where he served as past exalted ruler for a year. Earlier in her career, Elizabeth, known as Betty, spent her free time with soldiers returning from the war, dancing, playing ping pong, and talking. She sang in the church choir and briefly served as church treasurer. Mary, in 100, was a homemaker her entire life. She enjoyed playing cards at the senior center and going on her many trips to Colorado. She always looked for the good in people. Nellie, 79, was employed at the former Snow White Laundry. Clyde, 90, served in the Navy during World War II and was a meat cutter by trade. He was a member of the American Legion, the Steventown Fire Company, the Tamarack Twirlers, and the Drill Square Dancing Club, as well as the Albany Camera Club. Mary Ellen leaves behind her son James, her sister Teresa, her companion Rich, and her brother Harold. Anyone who knew her knew her love for Tigger. Evelyn, 87, was a waitress at the Crooked Lake Hotel. She enjoyed the horses at Saratoga and loved to sing and dance. Throughout the early part of her life, she partnered with Billy Nassau at the Cat in the Fiddle restaurant. Linda Ann is also survived by her cat, Sable, and her dog, Socks. She will be remembered for her extensive collection of elephant figurines. Paul, 78, was a member of the famed Kaiser's softball team and loved to bowl and jitterbug with his sister, Babe. Francis, 79, Korean War vet and soils expert, retired as drill supervisor. His quick wit, easy smile, and legendary handlebar mustache will be sorely missed.
Margaret, 88, church member and Yankees fan, loved traveling with her husband to engine and tractor shows all over the nation. Gordon, 68, an avid hunter, died peacefully at the fireman's home. Dolores, 83, was a seamstress with a lively sense of humor. It goes on. And the last um, sort of group of stories will be um, short, short stories that get shorter and shorter and shorter. So um, that's the only way I can really categorize them. Some of them are pretty recent. Some are a little older, but they, they start out this this short and then get. And those aren't really line breaks either, probably. Um, and then get. Uh, I mean, it's confusing if you write prose. Well, anyway, <laughs> they get um, they get very short, and they end with the ones that are one or two lines. Which I started writing when I was working on the Proust translation, which required me to be immersed in these vastly long sentences, and there was a great pleasure in that, seeing getting the the sentence to work out in English too, all the subordinate clauses to hang off of each other properly. But it was also a bit frustrating, so in reaction I think I went to writing the very short stories and set the challenge to myself of how short a story you could actually write that would still have any meaning at all. At which point the titles become very important. Grade two assignment. Color these fish, cut them out. Punch a hole in the top of each fish. Put a ribbon through all the holes. Tie these fish together. Now read what is written on these fish. Jesus is a friend. Jesus gathers friends. I am a friend of Jesus. Susie Brown will be in town. Susie Brown will be in town. She will be in town to sell her things. Susie Brown is moving far away. She would like to sell her queen mattress. Do we want her queen mattress? Do we want her ottoman? Do we want her bath items? It is time to say goodbye to Susie Brown. We have enjoyed her friendship. We have enjoyed her tennis lessons. <laughs> Circular story. On Wednesday mornings early, there is always a racket out there on the road. It always wakes me up. I always wonder what it is. It is always the trash collection truck picking up the trash. It comes every morning, every Wednesday morning, early. It always wakes me up. I always wonder what it is. Brief incident in short A, long A, and schwa. Cat, gray tabby, calm, watches large black ant. Man, rat, stands staring at cat and ant. 
Ant advances a long path. Ant halts, baffled. Ant backtracks fast, straight at cat. Cat, alarmed, backs away. Man, standing, staring, laughs. Ant changes path again. Cat, calm again, watches. Contingency versus necessity. He could be our dog, but he is not our dog. So he barks at us. The cornmeal. This morning, the bowl of hot cooked cornmeal, set under a transparent plate and left there, has covered the underside of the plate with the droplets of condensation. It, too, is taking action in its own little way. Can't and won't. I was recently denied a writing prize because they said I was lazy. What they meant by lazy was that I used too many contractions. For instance, I would not write out in full the words cannot and will not, but instead contracted them to can't and won't. (laughs) Sitting with my little friend. Sitting with my little friend in the sunshine on the front step. I am reading a book by Blanchot, and she is licking her leg. Notes during a long conversation with mother. For summer, she needs pretty dress, cotton, cotton, natok, kunt, takunt, tunkt, taknat, takant, taktan, kantat. Judgment. Into how small a space the word judgment can be compressed. It must fit inside the brain of a ladybug as she, before my eyes, makes a decision. The language of the telephone company. The trouble you reported recently is now working properly. (laughs) Bloomington. Now that I have been here for a little while, I can say with confidence that I have never been here before. (laughs) Housekeeping observation. Under all this dirt, the floor is really very clean. PhD. All these years, I thought I had a PhD, but I do not have a PhD. Thank you. I forgot about that. I didn't really forget altogether.
Now you can all turn on cell phones again, <laughs> in case it isn't interesting. Uh, yeah, there's, there's, oh, then I'll. Thank you. I wanted to ask you a little bit about revision. You mentioned it actually several times. Um, once at the very beginning when you said that you had you might have second thoughts about your, your work, and then later when you said you were correcting the pencil and, and Flaubert, of course, the reference to his revision. So can you talk a little bit about how you revise and, and when you revise and how you stop revising? Yeah, I can. I think all my answers are completely undependable, however because I used to think I had a specific way that it always worked. And then I recently was looking through some older stories and saw that it was completely different. So it's probably different um, all the time. It's certainly different from one story to another. Uh, surprisingly, even the very shortest stories require sometimes quite a lot of revision, you know, even one line. Um, Sometimes that will consist of uh, feeling that the rhythm isn't quite right. and um, Like the Bloomington ones, I added a word. It was originally, now that I've been here a while, so I felt it needed a little more. So I said, after I've been here a little while. And then I had to say, I can safely say that I've never been here before and then and then I realized, well, safely is not quite the right word. There's no threat. There's no, you know, that's not quite the right word. So I, I changed that to with confidence. But, and then sometimes it'll consist of putting a word in and waiting a while and thinking, no, that, that wasn't right, and taking it out again. Sometimes I shorten something a little. Um, I'm trying to think of an example, but... But um, I used to think that I wrote most of a story, well, it's still sort of true that I write most of a story very quickly. And that has to do with tapping into that, that um, free-flowing inspiration, or whatever you want to call it, where you stop being quite so in control of the material and you just let it occur to you. So you don't want to interrupt that. So I'll do that writing quite quickly but still fairly correctly just because I hear things, you know, that's the way you know, it's hard for me to write incorrectly unless I want to write incorrectly so it's not going to be totally ugly but it'll it'll be a little rougher and then uh, then I'll go back over it and work again and rework and rework and so I do a lot of intensive revision so the penciled um, the penciled parts that I was stumbling over, that just happened before I, when I was choosing which stories to read, and I read through that again and thought, mm, this could be a little bit better, and this could be a little more exact. Um, and even as I was reading, I thought, well, you know, I mentioned the two old, genteel old ladies, you know, in their, in their the joke, and that maybe I should stop the sentence there instead of continuing as I continued, but for one more little phrase, you know, that I always thought it was a fish was sort of redundant by then or something. So um, I just do it, I read through and read through and, and, and also let it sit for quite a while so that I'm reading it more freshly and then just change anything that I still don't like. 
So finally, I have a story that feels complete, and that doesn't always mean it's the best story I've ever written or that I really love it a lot, as much as I love that one over there. But it feels finished, as if I can't do anything more to it. Well, there was one before I get to, there was one here. That I, I, I hope this isn't a silly question, but uh, you mentioned that you tend to be a fussy person sometimes. So I'm, I'm wondering if uh, you ever aim in your very short pieces for a specific word count oh. at all. Did you hear her question? And do I ever, being a fussy person, do yeah. I ever aim for a specific word count? I don't unless, you know, someone's asked me to write, recently someone asked me to write 100 words on the five books I was currently reading. And I've since learned that when they say 100 words, you know, it can be 117, which it was at some point. But sometimes just for fun, I try to cut and then add and cut till I come out to exactly 100. But that's, that's more like a game. Um, no, I, I, I don't write schematically. I don't, I don't do that, although it's can be an interesting thing to do. But I don't. And Jerry? Yeah, this is really a follow-up on the rewriting question. Uh, in, in relation to translation, uh, do you find that with translation, the amount of rewriting is... Is endless? Endless, right. Uh, uh, with uh, other writing, uh, poetry, for example, uh, it can be, as Ginsburg said, first thought, best thought. First thought, with, yeah, with translation, that hardly ever the case. Yeah, you heard him ask about translation, the amount of revision that um, that goes that's sort of endless with translation. Whereas sometimes in your own work, first thought, best thought, and you shouldn't monkey with it too much. And that's that gets very tricky. I mean, it's absolutely true that revision, especially of a, a book that means a lot either to me or means a lot to other people. Well, I guess I, I always work hard on the translation, but even even books I hate uh, work reasonably hard on them. But, um, but it is endless, and in my case, I would revise even the hardcover before it went into a, into a paperback, when they allowed me to and when it mattered to me. So there'd be a lot of revision even at that stage because anything that, you know, especially a 400-page book, <clears throat> no matter how careful you are the first time, I don't mean the first time, but how careful you are once you think you're done, um, then you, if you reread it in six months or nine months, you're going to see things you don't like. But um, And then with your own work, it is very tricky. About, you don't want to spoil it, and you can spoil it. Um, if you, if you, I mean, it's it's it gets very strange because I've certainly had pieces that start start in a certain way and could go equally well in either of two directions, and that's a problem in itself. You know, you have to decide. You you know, I would then do both and then just, and decide which was better or if I could combine them, or if I could just say one and two. So some of the stories that I've written then have part one and part two, or just, yeah, one and two, uh, were two different versions. 
that started in the same place. And, uh, and I see it teaching fiction that, you know, say there's a problem with exposition, then there's a problem with this scene, and there's a problem with that, but there are multiple solutions. So it's very hard to cut out the framing story altogether or make it longer and fuller and reduce the inside story. And, you know, it's very hard. So you sort of have to use your reasoning powers, but also your gut feeling. You know, I, I really like this part. This is the part that matters the most to me, no matter what the workshop said, you know. And um, so I'm going to just keep that interesting part and go ahead with that. And that happens with stories that, um, that you put aside. I have a number of stories that I just put aside because I couldn't see a solution. So then you go back to them and say, well, what's the part that really made me start writing it and then try to get to start back with that. You know? So uh, the, the pieces that are based on family language, like the obituary piece, what kind of editing or arranging work goes into selection and how do you work on family language? Yeah, how do I how do I work on found found language pieces like the obituaries? Um, it, it again starts with something just delighting me and me not wanting to lose it, you know. You can be delighted by something like an obituary, as long as it isn't someone you know. Um, and you can either just put the paper away and say, isn't that funny or charming or something? Or you can, I, I get very acquisitive, as I did with the Flaubert stories with the obituaries and and uh, Lately, I've been reading the police blotter in the same local paper, and that's a lovely, lovely list of things, too, because very little happens, but um, there are many domestic disputes, very little, very dramatic. The police blotter in Cambridge, Mass., was much better. My father used to clip the police blotter and send it to me. But... Um, so it's a matter of spotting something that I want to use somehow. I suppose in the same way a, a sculptor working with found objects would just be enchanted by a certain form or texture and say, how can I incorporate that? And it's a lot of trial and error then because every found thing is very different. The, the obituary entries are very different from the Flaubert story. So you can't sort of learn how to use found objects and then use them that way. You each one sort of, you know, demands a different approach. So it's sort of trial and error, keeping all that really interests me. And then again, reading it over again a week later, two weeks later, and thinking this is too much or that's not interesting enough. Or yeah, the, the found stories from there are uh, in your translation. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. No, that that was a necessary part of it. I think if I'd read someone else's. English. He, Jerry asked if uh, you know, if I had translated the Flaubert letters. I mean the parts that I used, and yes, because if it was someone else's English, um, well, first of all, I, I would have felt I was taking their material. I'm taking Flaubert's material, but I, I'm fully going to acknowledge it. I'm not going to pretend that I wrote these all together. But the fact that Flaubert wrote most of each story. Uh, you know, you could think, well, why doesn't that stop you? I mean, it isn't really your story. So it isn't entirely my story, and yet I don't want to not do it because of that. Whoops. So, um, 
He asked about my translation of Blanchot's death sentence, which I did a very long time ago, compared to the recent Proust and, and Flaubert. Of course, the Proust is by now like 15 years old, but it still feels recent. I mean, the work I did on it was 15 years old. Flaubert really is recent. Um, probably translating Flaubert was uh, was... I mean, I've done a lot of different kinds of translations in my life because I was earning my living at it, which meant I had to say yes to a publisher who wanted me to translate, you know, a history of China or the life of Mao or something that I didn't want to translate. Uh, I didn't have much choice. So Blanchot would be, I think he would be the first writer where I, I really wanted to get his style very closely. So it would actually have a lot in common with, I mean, that's how I approached uh, Proust and Flaubert too, is to stay very, very close to the original sentence and not not take any liberties with it. Um, although I probably took more liberties with Blanchot than I, I mean, not real bad liberties, just changing things a little more than I would have, than I did with Proust and Flaubert because I was much more determined with Proust and Flaubert. I saw it as almost a cause, where, whereas with uh, Blanchot it was more an instinct, you know. He, he's very important to me, and the way he said it, the exact way he said it, is very important to me. Um, I don't know if that answers the question, but you do change over time, always, and so the way you the way you approach translation is going to change over time, too. Um, what was the research process like for uh, work like Blanchot compared with, uh, like, uh, you know, which uh, literary classics was, like, what resources were available to you at the time? The difference in research and resources. I'm not a big researcher before the fact, or before the first draft. In fact, I like to come to the project with um, not a whole lot of knowledge, <laughs> which goes against, that's why I'm not a PhD. <laughs> um, so I, in really in practice, I mean, you can't help having a certain amount of background knowledge, you know. So, but I didn't try to get more than that. So I didn't become an expert in Blanchot and read a great deal about him and around him before I started the novel. I, because actually I just, I was uh, quite young, I was in my 20s and I'm having trouble with my own writing at that point and a friend just said, well, here's, here's a, a really terrific novel. It's not that long, why don't you translate that for a while instead of trying to, you know, hit your head against the wall with your own work. So that was all it was, and, and I liked you know, the style in which it was written appealed to me a lot. So I just confronted the text very, it was just me and the text, and, the, and I wanted to do the same thing with Proust. I had not read the entire book Swan's Way before I started at any point. 
years before, decades before, I had read about two-thirds of it. I could tell by my careful little underlinings in pencil and little vocabulary words at the top and the bottom of the page. And then it, uh, those abruptly stopped two-thirds of the way through. <laughs> but I didn't go back and reread it because um, I really didn't want to know what happened on every page. I really didn't want to know that. I wanted to translate with the little unknown right ahead of me or a lot of unknown ahead of me and just a little unknown maybe I read the paragraph before I started it but sometimes sometimes it was somewhere in the middle of doing that which was a long you know you think of the whole work as tremendously long so Swan's Way isn't that long but it really is a long novel even though it's only one of I guess seven volumes so um Somewhere in there, to make it more fun for myself, I started translating without even reading the sentence ahead. You know, if it started with the, I put the. <laughs> and it was, uh, all this is permissible because in the end, you know, that's not what you're left with. You go back and you do another draft and another draft, and you, I looked at other translations, I rethought things, and, um, so you come to the later drafts quite well informed about the whole book but that exercise was fun because you could see how many words or phrases you had to read to receive meaning you know the has a certain meaning but it has more meaning when it's attached to the next word and so on and it it became because you know that's the way we read we read word by word we understand this much and then this much and then this much so I thought why not translated them. So that was, but that was a game. And um, with the Flaubert, as I said, all the rough drafts were available because these patient transcribers over in Rouen had typed up, had transcribed every single draft of every single word of Madame Bovary. So you could just look up a phrase and you could look up often say the seven versions that came before or sends the seven versions um, and that stood me in very good stead because uh, you know you you make assumptions when you're a translator and if you can see all the the drafts and all the processes of thought that when the author went through you can see uh, you can see what he was driving at or what he rejected sometimes Flaubert cuts a little too much for you to really understand what you're reading, you know. He cuts the necessary phrase or something. But I could, I didn't ever reinstate the phrase, but I could see what he meant. And um, for example, all the other, there were lots of other translations, and, and quite a few of them had the women at the ball holding a flask of perfume in their hands. And all Flaubert says is little gold-stoppered flasks. He doesn't say what's in them. And uh, I, was, I wasn't going to put perfume because I don't add things that aren't in the original. But when I looked at the rough drafts, what was in the flasks in earlier versions was vinegar. <laughs> the vinegar so that if you became faint during the ball, and I'm presently reading Uncle Tom's Cabin and vinegar appears again in 1852, or 1850 as something you would have on hand if you felt faint. So perfume was absolutely wrong, and that shows you the danger of inserting something that isn't in the original. 
Yeah. So were you working mainly with the play out edition, or were you working with these drafts? I mean, did you have a copy? Did you have a copy text that you? Yeah, it was. Um, I can't name the editor, but it was. I consulted a few. It's a yellow book. It's a yellow paperback. I can't remember. It, I asked several sort of so-called experts. I, I did ask about that, which is the most definitive edition. Which one should I use for this? And um, this was one that was published. In, I can't remember. The day. You're asking a difficult question. <laughs> um, but yeah, I made, took care to get to get the best edition, and that had a lot of notes, and it had a good good long introduction because. For my translation, I had many, many end notes, and um, that was a good resource for that. I wish I could. Re I should remember her. It was Goto somebody hyphenated Goto G O T H O T somebody. You don't want me to end on a lame note. Okay. One more, <laughs> <laughs> one, one more easy question, like what my name is. Bless you. What in the back? about that too because I don't really know that text well in French and English but um, so I, I can't can't answer about that one it's in general the cultural I mean there's a lot of cultural references in Madame Bovary because he was making fun of the middle class and their all their little little pet fashions and what they would put on their mantelpieces and what carriages they would drive so I footnoted, I mean not footnoted, but endnoted every single one, but also endnoted things that weren't particular cultural references, but just that I thought, I kept thinking of this bright young undergrad who wouldn't know what a wet nurse was or something. And that began to, that made me extend the endnotes terribly. Okay, thank you. There's a beautiful display of beautiful books over here. Please uh, purchase some and get them signed. <laughs>